We hope you'll enjoy this episode of Women Worth Knowing. Make sure you rate us on your podcast app, subscribe, and share it with a friend. And welcome to Women Worth Knowing. I'm Cheryl Berderson, and I'm in studio with my friend and co-host, or should I say host? Because today you're gonna, <laughs> yes, you're gonna, gonna throw sure it today. at us. Yes, I'm Jasmine. Hi, Jasmine. <laughs> you probably know that. Oh, no. Yes, yes. I guess last names are good too. Yes, yes. Today we are going to kind of continue along with uh, our little. I guess kind of mini theme that yes. we've had. You know, yep. we've been we've been talking about Civil War era yes. folks, and uh, you might recall Cheryl um, shared recently on Sojourner Truth. So today, I'm going to share about another former slave that is probably familiar to a lot of you, at least by name, and her name was Harriet Tubman. Well, and maybe so, people saw the movie yes. Harriet, which was. I think 10 out of 10. It was so good. I they, loved yeah. that movie. They did a great job. And they really stayed true to the story in a lot of aspects. There's some artistic license, of course, because it's a movie. But right. yeah, I think that's what made it so good. They really it were so pretty good. faithful. And you know what? You got the emotion in it, too. Yes. And yeah. that was, you yes. captured the emotion. You were so for Harriet. Yes. You, you fell in love with her. her. Oh, yes, totally. which I think in real life. That's oh, what happened. I think so. Yes. yes. A lot of people became her biggest fans. Right. <laughs> and so Harriet Tubman was, like I said, a former slave, and the Lord really raised her up, not just to speak out against slavery, but to actively move uh, in the years leading up to the Civil War and during the Civil War, as we're going to see. So um, she was born as a slave in Maryland. Um Around 1820, we don't really know. I right. think that happened with Sojourner Truth. We exactly. don't really know when they were born. Right. Harriet thought she was born in 1825. Yes. So there's some kind of a five-year gap there. It's right. just— Because they wouldn't record no. slave uh, the births. Yeah. Usually. Um, because sometimes the master would want to sell them as being younger. Yeah. And sometimes he would want to sell them as being older. Yes. So they kept that very— um, Fluid. Yes. Yeah. yeah. It is. It's so sad. They weren't human. Well, they, they weren't treated right. as human. And they were taking their identity away from yes, them. Absolutely. Yes. Absolutely. In any way possible. Right. Exactly. Right. So her parents uh, were Harriet Green and Benjamin Ross, and they named her Araminta. So I'm going to call her Araminta here at the beginning because that was her original name. And she went by Fun Minty. Fact. Minty. Yes, Minty. We can call her Minty. And so uh, Harriet and Benjamin had several other children, as many as 12, but we don't really know exactly. Like Cheryl was saying, they... A lot of those records were never kept. Again, the slaves weren't really treated as human. They were uh, just... Uh, Objective. Uh, yeah, objects to sell and mm -hmm. and, and use. And so, uh, ma miraculously, her parents actually managed to kind of stay together. They weren't always on the same plantation, but they were in the same area for nearly 20 years, which was actually kind of a miracle. And the area of Maryland. Yes, they were all in Maryland. And Maryland was, um, we've kind of mentioned this before, it was a slave state, but it was really close to the north, so it was one of the more lax um, slave states, it wasn't as hardcore as the Deep South. So um, it wasn't quite as bad, but still, you know, slavery was there. Um, and so even though her parents got to kind of remain together, at least two of Araminta's sisters got sold to the Deep South. And that was a tragic memory she kind of carried with her all her life. The uh, prospect of being sold to the, to the Deep South, it was a horrifying thing for the slaves. Um, so when she was five, she was sent to perform some domestic duties. And so they sent her off to take care of this white woman's uh, baby. And she was five years old. Five years Way too old. young, right? Ugh. She had to actually sit on the floor so she could hold the baby. She was too little. Minty herself, she was so small. I think she only grew to be about five feet tall as yes, an adult. Yes, so tiny, tiny. Like she yes. could 
So, and it was crazy. She had to rock the baby all night. And if the baby woke up and woke up the mistress, the mistress would, mistress would come and whip her. I mean, she's five. How is mm. she supposed to? I mean, mm. it was just crazy. And so obviously it became clear that she was too young to handle those kind of duties. And so she was sent back to her mom. But that became kind of like uh, a pattern in her early years. She was hired out a lot uh, for different domestic duties, but she was just a little too wild. Um, once her mistress and master were fighting and she saw some sugar cubes on the table. And so while they were arguing, she like stole sugar. And when they saw her, they, she ran um, away and hid in the pigsty for like four or five days before coming back. I mean, there were just I, I, a lot of situations like that. One time she had the measles and they sent her out anyway into the swamp to go get muskrats out of the traps that they had set. You know, again, she's what, under yeah. 10? Right. But we don't know exactly what age, but yeah, it's true. somewhere Roughly when she's young. Mm. That she's hit with that weight, yes, by an irate overseer, yes, who yeah. gets upset with her and throws a heavy weight. We don't even know. Do you know? Do we know what the object was? It was. It was like a lead weight. And actually, what happened was, well, he was mad at her, but he was also mad. There was a runaway. There was mm. a slave that was trying to escape, and she was trying to help him. Mm. And so she got in the way as the overseer was trying to throw the lead weight, and so it ended up hitting her like full on in the face. And so, uh, again, she was a young teenager. And at that point, she had stopped doing domestic work and they had put her out in the fields. Mm. So she was actually, that's where she really came into her own. When yeah. she was 12, she was really strong and tough and really good at field labor. Mm -hmm. um, so I think, you know, being tough, she kind of thought, well, I can, you know, get in the way of this, yeah. this situation. So, But it is interesting, though, that mm -hmm. already in her early teens, she's saying this is not Right. Yeah. This is not right. She and was feisty. I, she had a, what was her her saying? You, we all belong to God and nobody has the right to own yes. somebody else. Yes. There was this sense. And that's interesting mm -hmm. too, because she had learned apparently a sense of Christian faith from her parents. Uh, even though she was never taught to read or write, she you know, could hear messages. And there was a local black Methodist minister. Uh, he was a, free, a freed slave. His name was Samuel Green. And so she had these, these uh, people in her life, and it's really amazing. I don't know if we've mentioned this before, but this is something that always amazes me when I'm studying things from the Civil War era, how uh, powerful the gospel was, mm -hmm. that here are these horrible slave owners that were such hypocrites, acting like they were Christians and then beating their slaves or raping the women and doing all mm -hmm. these things and then thinking, oh, I can just go and be mm -hmm. forgiven of this. They had such negative examples of Christianity, and yet the gospel managed yeah. to get to— the slaves, in spite yes. of that, I think it's just one of the biggest testimonies, testaments to the power of the yeah. gospel. A lot of the way the gospel was communicated was through the Bible stories. Mm -hmm. And they so mm -hmm. related to Joseph and they so related yes, to a Moses. suffering yep. savior. Yes. That not a savior who exempted, even though he was the king of kings, never exempted himself from suffering mm. or from rejection mm -hmm. or from a cross, but entered into it so he could say, I know. Yes. And I love you. And that. You, that's the savior you want. They got it. Yes. It's like they understood the gospel yep. better than a lot of these Absolutely. supposedly Christian yes. slave owners. Right. Absolutely. And so, yes, understanding, wait, Jesus is for all of us. He died mm -hmm. for all, for me. I'm not just a, an object or a possession. I am a person with value. They saw that in Jesus. And so uh, that, their worth. And so, um, again, yes, she had this sense of justice from the time she was young. And when she got hit in the head with that lead weight trying to save and protect somebody else, which ended up being like just that's really what her life was, was about others and protecting other people. Uh, she actually was in bed for weeks and they didn't know if she was going to recover, if she was going to be like turned into a vegetable, like if she had brain damage. Uh, her family just prayed over her for weeks. 
Finally, she recovered, but the rest of her life, she would have this huge scar above her eye. Um, she also had a lot of bouts of narcolepsy, so she'd like fall asleep randomly in the middle of the day. Uh, they called it, or she called it, losing time. She would just lose some time, 20 minutes, 10 minutes, an hour. I mean, it was just, it was just kind of... Uh, random, and then you know, get back, wake back up again, and come to herself. Uh, sometimes she would even have. Uh, she also began to have visions, and it's not known whether that was part of the result of uh, what had happened to her, or because they call it, you know, maybe hypnagogic hallucinations. That was something a medical term, but uh, these were things actually that the Lord would use to speak to her. It's really interesting how, in this weakness, the Lord showed Himself strong, as we're going to see. So uh, she and her dad got hired by a lumberman named John Stewart. And he was actually kind of fair to his slaves, a little bit more than some of the others. And like I said, she was hired out a lot. That was something that was practiced a lot for whatever reason in their area. And she worked so hard. Like I said, she was a field worker from the age of 12, so she was really strong. And by the time she got into her 20s, she was such a good worker, she would go beyond her quota all the time. And um, this guy was actually, like I said, fair-minded enough to let his uh, slaves save money uh, if they worked extra. He said, okay, you can keep that money. She actually bought two cows with it. I thought, oh, oh wow, fun That's fact. Interesting. I know, yes. That is interesting, an investment. Uh, and then in 1840, her dad's uh, her, uh, master died, and so he was granted his freedom. Uh, but he stayed close to the family, kept working for John Stewart and stuff to stay near his family. But that was kind of an interesting moment, like, oh, my dad got his freedom. And that was something in Maryland that was a law that at certain ages, uh, sometimes the slaves could be freed. Um, and then in 1844, around 1844, we're not positive, uh, Araminta married John Tubman, who was also a free black. And uh, he, what that meant was, it's interesting, it didn't, if she married him, that didn't mean she went free. It meant he had to stay on the plantation with her. Uh, so, you know, but at least he was... Cheaper labor. Yeah. That's how yeah, they would exactly. get Exactly. Oh, man. Mm -hmm. They would work every angle. And so during this time, you know, she sees her dad got freed in 1840. And so she's thinking, okay, it's about time now. And my mom is of age. Like, she began to try to investigate to see if uh, her mom... And she were supposed to be legally freed, like her dad, based on the, the laws and the will of uh, the original master. And so she got a lawyer. She actually hired a lawyer to find out. And it was true. They were actually supposed to be freed. But her mom basically got cheated out of her freedom by the master's son and the family. And there's another thing that they would do. So let's say um, a slave was meant to go free. They were given their freedom. What they would do is they would um, hire like police or vigilantes mm. to have trumped up charges yes. against them. And Ugh. then they would say, well, if you want to pay off these charges, they'd make it just astronomical. Yeah, impossible. So then these people would have to sell themselves back into slavery yeah. in order to pay off the charges. Oh. It was so criminal. So criminal, yeah. so corrupt. And yes. so and so easy for them to just you know, conveniently ignore yeah. these things, or like you said, to create um, charges and things like that. Yes. And so this, at this point, Araminta was like, okay, this is just a betrayal. I mean, this is so obvious what you guys are doing, that you're not um, going to do the right thing. And so she resolved at this point to liberate herself. I've got a quote. Mm, yes. She said, um, I prayed all night long for my master till the 1st of March, mm. and all the time he was bringing people to look at me and trying to sell me. <laughs> when it appeared as though a sale was being concluded, I changed my prayer. 1st of March, I began to pray, Oh, Lord, if you ain't never going to change that man's heart, kill him, Lord, <laughs> and take him out of the way. And a week later, uh, that slave owner died. Yes. 
Yeah, that's great. That was the next, I'm glad you shared that quote because that's, and that's actually a fuller quote than what I had. So that gives you a picture of what was going on. She could tell like, this is something, Mm -hmm. something fishy's going on here. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, it was crazy. It was almost like, whoa, an answer to prayer. She actually felt really bad. Like, yes, after that happened, like, okay, God, that was was an early judgment there. Yes. Um, But at this point, she did realize her situation was dire, especially after the master died, because then it was, there was an even greater possibility she could get sold to the deep south. They just liquidate the Mm -hmm. estate, you know, sell everybody. And so uh, September of 1849, so this is a few years in, she's been married for about five years at this point. And uh, she escaped. And her husband wasn't really that keen on escape. He never really felt as strongly well, about it. he was it. freed. That's, yeah, he was freed. So he was fine, you yeah. know, to stay there. And we don't really know, um, you know, the movie doesn't necessarily portray this, but uh, it's believed, she didn't really say a whole lot. We don't have tons of records from that time, but it's it's thought that maybe the fact that they couldn't have children after five years, it seemed like maybe the marriage was cooling a little bit. Like he might've been a little bit yeah. like, mm. Well, also the marriages wouldn't be recorded. Yeah. Because yeah. the slave owners often like to arrange their own yep. unions to get stronger children. Oh, sure. Or and so of, yeah. um, they weren't necessarily considered legal or ever legalized or yeah. registered. Yeah, so. they would just jump the broom, as mm-hmm. they say, to make it happen. Yeah. And then that way, too, then they could liquidate that marriage and end mm-hmm. it if they wanted and rearrange it. So, right. uh, yeah, so um, she ended up going by her escaping by herself September of 1849. Uh, ends up in Philadelphia, which had been a refuge for a lot of runaway slaves. I'm sure many of you know Philadelphia, uh, Pen- well, Pennsylvania in general, was founded by the Quakers, right? William Penn and the Quakers, who were, I mean, oh, I love the Quakers. I wrote a humongous research paper on them because they really, before anybody else, they seem to really understand that uh, in the eyes of God, everyone is equal and that everybody has value. And so they were very much anti-slavery and uh, really, really cool. So uh, Philly was a good split spot for her to land. Um, and at this point, she changed her name. So she wasn't Minty anymore. Now she took on her mother's name, which was Harriet. And uh, I guess that was a that was a common thing to do for freed or refugee slaves to just take on a new name. Frederick Douglass mm-hmm. uh, talked about that, mm-hmm. that it was just kind of a symbol of your freedom, like mm-hmm. I'm a new person now. Um, but even though, you know, she has a new fresh start, she didn't really like living in freedom by herself. She really missed her family. And so she became involved with the Underground Railroad, which had kind of helped her make her own escape. That was kind of her introduction to it was some of these people she connected with in her own escape. And so for the Underground Railroad, in case uh, you don't know, um, some people think like, oh, was it like a tra- like a subway, a train? That yeah. under- no. Don't we wish. <laughs> um, yeah, that would have been kind of cool back then. Legend has it that in 1831, there was a Kentucky slave who escaped his master so quickly that the master said that he must have gone underground. Where did that guy go? And then uh, slaves themselves began to speak of an underground railroad all the way to Boston. And so by the 1840s, it had earned kind of a reputation. It was a well-oiled machine at that point. The paper of Maryland Mm. uh, was posting $100 rewards Mm -hmm. for any escaped Mm -hmm. slaves. And if they were caught, the master could do anything. He could make an example of them, kill them in front of the others. He, He would you know, definitely beat them. Yeah. I mean, this was what she undertook to do. And at one point she said, I realized I had one of two choices. I would either die or I would escape. Yeah. And she said, either of those choices was preferable to slavery. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And so, I mean, and really that, 
that kind of underscores the risk that mm-hmm. all of these people That's were right. taking. That's right. Because we getting talk about involved underground in railroad. And yeah. It sounds like almost fun. Oh, yeah, totally. Oh, an adventure. Uh-uh. Yeah. I mean, this they was... were hunted. They oh, had yeah. to hide. Um, the, they had dogs. I mean, it oh, was. It, it was brutal. It was I mean, brutal. Yeah, it was... And then there were bounty hunters yep. who would just um, be paid mm-hmm. to return uh, runaway slaves. Sometimes they just ca- uh, capture freedmen and take oh, them totally. in. I mean, didn't, it was, yeah, you didn't have any right, legal right. Yeah. It was terrible. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, so these, so they had to use a lot of ingenuity, you know, yeah. ingenuity secrecy. And so they had all mm-hmm. these code names. They had uh, station masters who were kind of the mm-hmm. stops in each city that you would go to uh, stations or warehouses. Conductors were the mm-hmm. escorts. That's what Harriet ended up doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, cargo was the fugitives. And so they'd always talk about like, how much cargo are you bringing through to this station? So they had to keep yeah. everything very secret. And they secretive. had to travel at night. They night had to was do the everything only at night. time that was safe. Yeah. And so all of these people, and, and you got to remember, too, this wasn't just uh, people like Harriet and former slaves. A lot of white people, uh, you know, and their families, especially Quakers, would risk life and limb. We talked about Harriet Beecher Stowe and her husband and how they would take great risks mm-hmm. to help slaves escape. And, and like, you know, like Cheryl was mentioning, we don't have a lot of records because they had to be so secretive. Um, but we do know some of the agents and the conductors and the station masters, especially the white ones, because they got arrested all the time. My favorite, I have to mention him. Uh, if you watch the movie, they barely touch on this guy. But he was a really uh, dear friend of Harriet's and a helper in the Underground Railroad. And his name was Thomas Garrett. He's my favorite. He was a Quaker. And uh, he probably is the one who helped her come up through Maryland and is Delaware to Philly. he the one that Philly. hit her in the, in the cart? Uh, he met her after she got out of the cart. Okay, yes. Okay. Yep, exactly. Oh, wait, she, he might have been that guy. They didn't really talk about him a lot. So, yes. Yes. Uh, that was his circuit, though, and he helped her on a lot of her rescues. But mm-hmm. one time he got arrested and he was forced to pay $5,000 and it actually ruined him financially. Mm-hmm. That was a lot of money back then. Oh, yeah. But then the sheriff came up to him and said, well, I hope, Mr. Garrett, you'll take warning by this punishment and never violate the law again. And Garrett responded and he said, friend, because he was a Quaker. Yes. Friend, if thee should see a fugitive slave and want of help today, thee will please send him to me. So in other words, you know, I'm going to just keep on going on. And so I love these guys. Uh, They really remind me of, if you read, you know, David in 1 Samuel 24, when he says, I won't offer to the Lord what costs me nothing. Just the willingness, Mm -hmm. not just to talk about helping them, but to just go for it, Mm -hmm. even at great personal cost. I just love those guys. So, you know, Harriet's connecting with these people. And they all gained a measure of notoriety or respect, depending on what side of the coin you fell, Mm -hmm. pro or anti-slavery. But Harriet became the most famous because she was a refugee slave herself. And so that made her an effective conductor because she, you know, she knew all the ways to go, all the hidden trails and stuff. Uh, She was one of the only independent women involved in the Underground Railroad. Um, She also, this is crazy, and this is kind of something Cheryl was just touching on. She made all her rescues after the Fugitive Slave Act in 1850. That was what really empowered these bounty hunters to come and just grab whoever. Uh, Mm -hmm. The Fugitive Slave Act meant no matter where you were, you could get taken back to the South. Um, and so that made things even more dangerous. All her rescues were after that time. Yeah. Also, all her rescues, not only at night, but in the winter, because people didn't want to go out then. It was less likely for the bounty hunters, if the conditions were bad, mm-hmm. they'd want to stay indoors. Yeah, exactly. And that's when she'd be on the move. She was so smart. Mm-hmm. Also, what was crazy about her was she wouldn't rescue just one person at a time, which was what most people did. She would rescue large groups. That was like kind of a trademark of hers. It was crazy. And most of all, she was never caught. That was uh, something really remarkable about her. They, she would pretend to be a slave. Like at, at yep. one house of a, um, on the railroad, she started. 
started sweeping the front porch mm-hmm. like she was a slave. Mm-hmm. Another time she was car- she carried on one of her journeys, she carried two chickens yes, under her arms. Yeah, yes, story has- I love that one. Yes. Well, I'll get, yes, I'll get to that. Yes. <laughs> I love that. She was so uh, resourceful and clever. Right. So how she really got like dialed in with this, she had notified her family that she made it safely north. And so they apparently um, contacted her through some anti-slavery channels and told her that her favorite niece, Kizzy, was about to get sold into the Deep yeah. South with her kids. Yes. And that's what really got Harriet to say, OK, I have to go now. And so she goes back, which is crazy. You read the story, you get kind of nervous for her, like she's going back to the land of her captivity. Oh, my gosh. This is like, you know like St. Patrick did in Ireland, you know, but to be to be willing to go do that. Her first rescue was around December of 1850, like you said, in the winter. And it was crazy. It was just a miracle, this first trip in itself, that she had to navigate the city of Baltimore, which she didn't even know. She wasn't even familiar with it. And, and the Lord led and guided her. She was able to bring Kizzy's family back to safety. Her second rescue was uh, spring of 1851. So every now and then she'd take a spring journey. Uh, She was able to get her brother and two other guys on that journey. And then the third rescue, fall of 1851, so this is two years after her own escape, that was when she went back to try to get her husband. But what she didn't know was that he had remarried. And um, his new wife uh, had ki- was able to have children. I think she was pregnant when Harriet got there. And so Harriet was devastated, obviously. She just couldn't believe that he hadn't waited for her. And, that you know, anyways, it was just so crushing. You know, she just prayed. She's like, God, what do you want me to do? And at this point, she felt like the Lord really showed her that, you know, he was calling her to rescue all these other people. She's like, you're not alone. He's like, you're not alone, Harriet. You're not the only one here. And she's like, Lord, if I don't want to. You know, she really wrestled with the Lord on this, but she really felt like he said to her, it's you I want, Harriet Tubman. And so from that moment on, she said, okay. That's really important because yeah. her Christian faith was was huge. Huge. Yes. And um, one man, Thomas Garrett, said mm-hmm. of her, Thomas Garrett, your friend, yeah. I never met with any person of any color who had more confidence in the voice of God yes, as spoken direct to her soul. Yes. And so, I and mean, he would that, know. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, she knew when the Lord was uh, speaking mm-hmm. to her. Um, but she also, we, we talked about some of her subterfuges, but there's a couple more that are really interesting mm-hmm. that she used Sorry. songs. Oh, yeah. Yep. She, she used spirituals, spirituals as coded message. Yep. So she would sing, you know, go down Moses. And mm-hmm. it would mean that the, it was safe or it wasn't safe. Mm-hmm. And she would call out glory to God and Jesus too, one more soul safe, uh, as soon as they crossed the border. So she used these songs to communicate. Yeah, to communicate when whether, to do when a to rescue. Go, when to yep. safe. Yeah, and she would, in the movie, they show her singing from yeah. the forest, but that actually really happened. Yeah. She would sing to the people, like, if you want to come, and they would know where to meet her mm-hmm. because of the songs. And she had a beautiful voice. Yes, too. she did. And nobody would suspect that. Like right. you were saying about her sweeping the porch. Yes. Nobody would suspect her on these things because she was just looked like another slave out there That's singing. Right. And they all sang while they were working That's in the right. field. So it yes. didn't seem like any communication. And so... What's neat is uh, on that trip where she realized her husband wasn't going to come back with her, um, it was so cool because one uh, abolitionist who really admired her said, man, she didn't give way to rage or grief. She just pressed on to try to free other people. And on that particular trip, she took back 11 people to Philadelphia in that one. It was like, whoa, I can't bring my husband back. I guess I'll take 
11 more. It was so dangerous. So uh, this is where she really became a conductor. And so she would do, like we were saying, she would kind of, uh, she started like a pattern of making one or two rescue journeys a year, usually in the winter. Sometimes she would sneak a spring journey as well. And then she'd raise her own money as a cook in the summer months. She'd go down and, and help in New Jersey at a in a resort town and, and as a you know cook and a maid and earn money for all of this. And after the Fugitive Slave Act, she actually realized that even the North could be kind of dangerous. So she would be taking them all the way up to Canada, Canada. because mm -hmm. that was just, she's like, I just don't trust Uncle Sam with my people anymore, she said. So she would take them to what was called Canada West, which is now Ontario. And so most of her rescues came from Maryland and Virginia. Again, she would take up to 10 people at a time. She was ultimately able to free most of her own family. And uh, she would have all of these strategies, like, like Cheryl was mentioning, resourceful ways. One historian said, because her rescue missions were fraught with danger, Tubman demanded strict obedience from her fugitives. A slave who returned to his master would likely be forced to reveal information that would compromise her mission. So if a slave wanted to quit in the middle of a rescue, Tubman would hold a revolver to his head and ask him to reconsider. I mean, she was hardcore. She's yeah. like, you know what? You, you know, and you're right. I can't she let was, you go back. She is five feet tall. Mm. She rescued over 70 slaves in about 13 different expeditions. Wow. But she helped mm. 50 to 60 additional fugitives that oh, she yeah. would find on the way. Yes. Or she happened yeah. to be on a, a Take stop. people along. Yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, but, and it was just, uh, yeah, there's so many remarkable stories. Again, you yes. want to read her story. I'll give you some resources at the end here, but she was such a quick thinker. And this is uh, the, the story you started to mention about the chicken. Yes. Because uh, one time she had to go back to her home county. So she was thinking, oh man, I could easily be recognized here. Because remember, she'd been uh, farmed out to a lot of different masters in the area. A lot of people knew who Minty was. And so, you know, she'd carry chickens and wear a big sunbonnet. And then uh, if she saw somebody she knew, she'd pull the chicken's leg and it would freak out. So that the master would be like, oh, oh try to just get away from her. Uh, sometimes she would hold up a newspaper, even though she couldn't read, so that, you know, they couldn't see her. I mean, she was just, and she was also really tough. One time, this is crazy, she had a tooth infection on an escape, and it was so painful, she finally knocked her own front teeth out with a revolver. Isn't that gnarly? One person said, Harriet doubtless saw her faith rather than her own personal courage as her only armor. And that's, that's really right. important with that's her. So kind good. of what we've been talking mm -hmm. about her belief in the power of prayer, or, you know, letting the Lord lead. There were times she'd stop in the middle of a rescue and everybody would freak out, like, what are you doing? And it would, and then find out later that her stopping because of the Lord's prompt had saved them from ambush. I mean, so many times where her faith in the Lord uh, doing what he asked her to do. And she said, hey, the Lord never deceived me. I just did everything exactly like he told me to do with simplicity. And so uh, she eventually, again, she became friends with uh, John Brown in 1858, who, uh, and this is getting closer to the war, mm -hmm. and he was the one who started the slave insurrection at Harper's Ferry, which really launched the war. And Harriet knew that that was what was going to happen. She said, when I think of all the groans and tears and prayers I've heard on the plantations, and remember that God is a prayer hearing God, I feel that his time is drawing near. He gave me my strength. He set the North Star in the heavens, and he meant that I should be free. And so she knew, like, man, and the Lord is going to answer all these prayers from the slaves. And sure enough, the Civil War broke out in April 1861, uh, sparked a lar in large part by John Brown's death, who she had been partnering with. And so early in the war, we know uh, Lincoln was kind of riding the fence on abolition. Uh, Harriet said, God won't let Mr. Lincoln defeat the South till he does the right thing. Yes. She led the Combahee River raid during the war. And that was a biggie for her because Big. that's what really launched her and made her famous. She led the Union rescue of over 750 slaves that's from right. their plantations that's right. during the war. 
During the war, too, she was the first um, woman to lead an armed assault in the Civil War. Mm-hmm. First woman. Yeah. I mean, I mean she led so, it. Yes. yes. She was the one who led that whole thing. Yes. That's why they made her, it made her famous. Was, right. And she'd been kind of trying to go under the yes. undercover for a long yes. time. So uh, she had done so much in secret. Now everybody knew. And so after the war, she settles in, in New York with her parents uh, in a home that was— uh, basically given to her by uh, William Seward, who was a state senator. I mean, so many people admired what she had done. And she would allow herself basically to go into poverty for the sake of other people. She was taking people in constantly, where some of her benefactors would tell her, Harriet, unless you use that money for yourself, I'm not going to give it to you because you just keep giving everything away. And so she had such a heart to give. Uh, Others had to raise money for her, really, because she wouldn't do it for herself. Uh, She became a force in women's suffrage in her later years. She knew Susan B. Anthony, Sojourner Truth, and she outlived practically all the great abolitionists and war heroes of her generation. Uh, She died somewhere around the ages of 85 to 95. We're not sure based on uh, her birth date, but uh, she got married. She did. She remarried to a guy 20 years younger than her. I mean, there's so much of her story that you definitely want to read about. So fascinating. So she was considered by Thomas Higginson, he said, the greatest heroine of the age. And so, I mean, she really, uh, yeah, made such an impact. And again, her relationship with the Lord was noted by all. Everybody knew she was a woman who had faith and simplicity to obey God. So you definitely want to read her story. Road to Freedom by Catherine Clinton is a great biography if you want to read uh, a little bit more very well researched so so we're gonna have to end i know so we want to know if you've got a woman we should highlight on this Mm -hmm. program that if she's worth knowing yes we want to know who she is Mm -hmm. so write us it could be your mom it could be your sister it could be somebody that you just think i hope they highlight this person Mm -hmm. so this is cheryl broderson and jasmine allnut say thank you for joining us on women worth knowing Thank you for listening to Women Worth Knowing with Cheryl Broderson and Jasmine Allnett. For more information on Cheryl, visit CherylBroderson.com or follow her on Instagram or Facebook. You can also follow Jasmine on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. If you think there is a woman worth knowing, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at wwk at cccm.com. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode. Make sure you've subscribed and don't forget to rate us on your podcast app and share it with friends. Thank you again for listening to Women Worth Knowing with Cheryl Broderson and Jasmine Allnutt.